Greetings. This is not an episode of The Dig. It is me, Daniel Denver, the host of The Dig, but it's me appearing on another podcast. Citations Needed, a wonderful program about the intersection of media, PR, and power, hosted by Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. The interview they did with me is about this commonplace argument that so-called wokeness, left or liberal identity politics, is what's driving people, particularly working-class white men, into MAGA. Regular listeners to The Dig will know that I do certainly think that there are harmful forms of identity politics, forms that liberal elites deploy to displace anti-racist working-class struggles in favor of spectacles of representation and recognition. I had a really great discussion about that just a few months back with political scientist Jared Clemens. But even the notion that those harmful and obnoxious forms of identity politics are the primary cause of working-class white realignment to the right is, as I argue in this interview, simply absurd. The Democratic Party, alongside the Republicans and capitalists, eviscerated the power of labor unions— the very institutions that mediated and mediate working-class people's political relationships, including their relationship to the Democratic Party. Indeed, the New Democrats under Bill Clinton actively and explicitly sought to sell out their working-class base and find a new constituency with affluent professional suburbanites, something I recently discussed with historian Lily Geismer. And this history, of course, goes farther back still, to the contradictions within the New Deal order that, when the crises of the 1970s came, made it difficult, some might argue impossible, for the Democratic Party to do anything other than to participate in resolving those contradictions by way of a new settlement in capitalism's favor, thus laying the groundwork for so-called Reagan Democrats. And so, The centrist or never-Trump arguments that the left is who caused white workers to move right is a naked ploy to obscure their own deep complicity in MAGA's rise, and also to check left-wing demands for economic, racial, and gender justice, and in doing so to blame the targets of today's right-wing race and gender panics for causing those panics in the first place. And these panics, as we've seen once again— have horrifically lethal consequences. Okay, here's my interview from a recent episode of Citations Needed. To listen to the entire episode and to listen to all their great episodes, please subscribe to Citations Needed. It's one of the few podcasts that I regularly listen to, and it's really good. Also, please take a moment to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig, and we will see you after the holiday with a lot more dig content. We are joined now by Daniel Denver. Dan, great to have you back on Citations Needed. Really great to be here. I love your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And I yours. Uh, So (laughs) I'm excited to have you on to talk about this. I'm very excited to talk about this topic in general, but specifically with you, because I know it's something that you've thought a lot about. But this idea that the left kind of pushes otherwise sensible normie liberals and centrists into the arms of the far right, 
It's a trope that dates back many years, if not decades, as we documented at the top of the show, but it really kind of began to accelerate and became its own subgenre take with the rise of Trump in 2015 and 2016. So I want to sort of begin there. There was a cottage industry of explanations as to why a plurality of voters elected such an objectively vile, cruel, and racist person in Trump. And the idea that a sizable chunk of these voters did so not because they agreed with the vile, cruel, and racist positions of Trump, but because they wanted to sort of strike a blow, a protest blow against the woke far left contingent. This was kind of before woke became the preferred racialized pejorative. This was back when it was political correctness or any other kind of shorthand for that, trans bathrooms or whatever. Days after the election, David Brooks, Bill Maher, Mark Lilla, John Haidt, and many others blame so-called identity politics for driving people to Trump. I want to sort of begin at that point, November, December of 2016. Why do you think this narrative was so attractive? It's obviously very unfalsifiable. Like, I don't know how to show that's not true. I mean, I guess maybe there is some statistical way that you may be aware of, but it does seem like it sort of gets everybody off the hook. That's why you're here, yeah. to prove John hate right. Yeah. Did you do a statistical <laughs> analysis? But I want you to talk about why you think that's attractive and who it kind of served and why, because it was very, very common immediately after the election. Yeah. I mean, I will first answer the question of why it's attractive, what function it serves. But I would later on like to attempt to demonstrate that it's definitely verifiably false. So why do people blame left wing woke mobs for driving otherwise calm, reasonable, sensible Americans into becoming far right extremists? I mean, the narrative, like you suggested, is attractive to extreme centrist pundits and politicians because it washes the hands of the neoliberalized Democratic Party and the old Republican establishment of any culpability for making MAGA a reality. Instead, conveniently, it blames us, their political opponents on the left. And I mean, I can't say for sure if that's their intention. Some of the people making the argument, I imagine, probably sincerely believe it or whatever that means. Right. But that is the argument's principal function, without a doubt. The culpability is very clear here. The Republican Party, I mean, it's almost not even worth repeating because it's so obvious the culpability of the Republican Party as it's existed for decades in making Trumpism a reality from Goldwater through Reagan, Gingrich's Republican Revolution, the Tea Party. It's pretty obvious why the weekly standard Lincoln Project types are complicit in the right becoming ever more just like deranged and why they would not like to be blamed for that. But the Democratic Party is also very, very complicit here as well, which is less obvious to a lot of people. I mean, you mentioned the book that I published in 2020, which was basically about the Democratic Party's role in working with Republicans to preside over just the steady immiseration of working class Americans for decades and decades, and then legitimating the demonization of immigrants as the scapegoat, the principal scapegoat mm -hmm. for that immiseration. So the function it serves is pretty clear, and it's to get them off the hook for the monster they've created. Yeah, I mean, part of this also speaks to, I mean, something we've talked about a whole bunch on Citations Needed, which is this idea of civility. The left has gotten so shouty, right? And so cancely. <laughs> That's really what's doing it. Like, people just don't want to hear that anymore. And yet somehow, then the alleged reaction to the breakdown of civility in politics is... Not somehow to go to, you know, <laughs> those who maybe collectively want to make 
people's lives materially better or, you know, enhance <laughs> access to rights, uh, right, that should be inalienable or uh, at least legally enshrined. But no, the woke mob is so annoyingly shrill that the only recourse, the only refuge for the normals who just, you know, don't want to hear that cacophony anymore, is to go, like, full-blown Nazi. Like, what do you think this idea of the, you know, reaction to this kind of scoldy shrillness is to then be like, oh, I can finally be the Dennis Leary asshole that I truly am? And you made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> to paraphrase Michelle Obama for years back, you know, when we go low, you know, they go into the burning pits of the deepest hell. That's what you get for going low is just people becoming absolute Nazis for just being mean on the Internet, even for a moment, that one moment of weakness. I mean, one basic problem here is that this constant focus on, you know, the so-called swing voters in the middle who are swinging between Democrats and Republicans, which totally ignores. And this is insight and insight other people have had. I'm not making this up here, but ignores the swing voters on the left, people who are swinging between voting for Democrats and voting for a third party or voting more likely for absolutely no one at all because they're totally alienated from a political system that has done nothing for them their entire lives. So Republicans understand the importance of keeping their base fired up. Democrats hold their base in contempt. So that's one problem is the whole basic framing of which voters we're concerned about. But I will stipulate that it's indeed a problem that an increasing proportion in recent decades of white working class people have been voting Republican, particularly since the great financial crisis. And the problem with the argument that blames wokeness for doing that is, and this is where my promised demonstration <laughs> using history that this is wrong, that blames wokeness is that it gets the historical sequencing all wrong. White working class people did not get pushed out of the Democratic coalition by anti-police protests or people with pronouns. They were pushed out by the Democratic establishment. This was the project of the New Democrats led by Bill Clinton. It was their explicit program, something that Lily Geismer, this amazing historian, has written about at great length, an explicit program of turning away from the working class, not just the white working class, but the whole working class, mm -hmm. turning away from them in unions towards suburbanites and professionals. And so white working class people not all of them, but many, were for much of the 20th century embedded in the Democratic Party through institutions, namely labor unions. And those unions had a certain position in the United States' social, political, economic order. And what happened was the neoliberalized Democratic Party alongside American capitalism going into crisis in the 70s and reconstituting itself in neoliberal form, that severed the link between working class people, including but by no means exclusively white working class people, severed them from the Democratic Party by separating them from those unionized jobs and from their unions, and then imposing a new economic and social order with an entirely different moral sensibility. This, you know, there was an ethos, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about the past by any means, but, you know, ethos of solidarity and social welfare replaced by one that prizes individual achievement in a zero-sum world. So there are these moments of crisis that the Democratic Party has exploited to drive working class people away from the party. And Obama is a case in point here. On the eve of Obama's election, working class white voters measured very imperfectly by non-college graduates, they were more or less evenly split between the two major parties. And I mean, and that doesn't include the large number who were alienated and not voting for anyone. But today, it's two thirds nearly voting Republican. So what happened? What happened was a once-in-a-generation event, the global financial crisis, 
and the government's response to it, a once-in-a-generation event that had the capacity to radically remake people's identities, subjectivities, political allegiances. And the Democratic Party, led by Obama at the time, was perceived, understandably, as bailing out the banks, whereas the right, with the Tea Party, swept in and framed the crisis as one where big government had allied simultaneously with like the greedy big banks and the parasitic poor people to screw over hardworking everyday Americans. And we, I just can't overemphasize enough how critical that 2010 election that wiped out Democratic state legislators that would never be reelected in places all over this country. Obama won Indiana. Something like that will never <laughs> you know, or not anytime soon happen again. Those are the kind of things that radically remake people's political consciousnesses, identities and allegiances, not like getting annoyed by something someone said to them on Twitter. It's just an absurd assessment of how history operates. Yeah, I think that's what made the kind of Hillary Clinton adopting this kind of DEI language in 2016 so bizarre <laughs> because her husband and her 2008 campaign against Obama deliberately played to racism and pandered to racism. Remember, hardworking white Americans, uh, obviously Clinton, who had his... Because again, if you're, if you're doing the sort of unpopular neoliberal economic policy, you have kind of two tracks to try to pick off the so-called moderate white swing voter. You can appeal to upwardly mobile professionals using superficial appeals to you know social justice that don't really mean much, but kind of sound good for people with law degrees. Or you can try to peel off Bubba with racism. They did the Baba racism thing in the 90s quite explicitly. And then suddenly around 2014, there was this shift where, oh, actually, no, Bernie Sanders and all his supporters are racist and we're the anti. I mean, I'm just like, what? What? Wait, 2008, you ran the most like you ran a pretty shamefully race baiting campaign against Obama. And I think that kind of shows you that they realized that they had got as much out of that lane as they could. And then realized that the only thing that they needed some kind of angle to latch on to. And so. They adopted a kind of superficial, for want of a better term, identity politics. So that always struck me as strange. People have the memory of goldfish, but I want to <laughs> I want to sort of be fair here and kind of try to prop up the strongest argument for those who make this point. Strong being a relative term, because I don't think it's actually that strong, which is the idea that liberals and leftists have increasingly been quick to banish, yell at, censor, morally condemn, rather than try to convince or argue. I think this is kind of true, but I also think it emerged from a place of frustration with a concern troll posture from the right where you always, you constantly had to re-litigate and debate the basic humanity of black people, trans people, gay people. And that kind of gets exhausting after a while. Cause like, I don't think Danush DeSouza is really interested in having a debate. I don't think the 75th debate on the campus of Middlebury college is really going to be very like, so I, I, a part of me is like, yeah, okay. So we decided just to yell at people that works. Yeah, that's fine with me. But I want to sort of talk about this dynamic because on the you know one hand, I do think that is kind of true. But again, I also think it's sort of Pollyannish about where the professional right comes into play, which is I don't think they're really concerned with debate. To me, it's about the power dynamics of the person you're talking to or trying to convince, right? Like, I don't think, like, Brett Stevens recently published a column where he said, oh, I, you know, I was finally convinced of the truth of climate change because I flew out to Greenland. And I'm like, you know what I love about this praxis is how scalable it is. <laughs> if I could just fly every, every climate denying American out to Greenland for the price of $7 trillion. Maybe we can convince 51.4% of them to, yeah. And it won't cost a lot of carbon either to do that. Yeah, exactly. And John Chait says, oh, look, you know, John Chait holds it up and says, look what happens when you try to convince rather than try to get someone fired. I'm like, but Brett Stevens is not like some normie, like 26-year-old, half Latino, half white Uber driver who listens to Joe Rogan and is curious about 
who has a kind of hodgepodge. He's not some under, he's a political operative who's there to sort of repackage the post-Trump Republican Party. And that to me seems the issue. I think like all these people, all these centrists, all, you know, the Bill Mars and Lillas, all the people I notice on Twitter, they get yelled at all day and they like, they'd say, oh, well, this is not good politics. And it's like, yeah, because you're a rich piece of shit who's not going to be convincible anyway. This is not like door-to-door retail politics, which most union organizers and people who do real organizing around these things, this is a different, it may as well be in fucking Greek or Chinese, right? It doesn't mean anything. So I want you to talk about this idea that the left has gotten super scoldy. I think that's true in certain contexts, but I actually think it's mostly not true, but maybe I'm pandering to our listeners. I don't know. Tell me if you think that's a fair description of, of the criticism. Yeah. I mean, first, before I answer that, I do want to very much agree with what you said at the top of your question about Clinton era social politics. I think it is very important, given just how unhinged from historical reality the debate over all of this has become today. Very important to emphasize that the very same neoliberalized Democratic Party that in the 90s was so aggressively selling out the working class, white and otherwise, was not at all woke, like not a little bit. Very, very reactionary. Their attempts to woo this more high-end constituency were accompanied by a major crackdown on immigrants, the end of welfare as we knew it, mass policing and mass incarceration. Ricky Ray Rector. Yeah, Ricky Rector. The Defense of Marriage Act. So, yeah, I mean, that's an important piece of context. But to answer your question, I think it's very safe to say that people like Brett Stevens having a fragile ego does not explain deep structural transformations in American politics that have taken place in the last few decades. That just doesn't make sense. So, yes, yell at Brett Stevens if that makes you feel good on Twitter. And it's probably like there's probably something healthy about that, maybe. But yes, that is very different from yelling at individuals, which like, you know, ordinary everyday people, whatever. Yelling at individuals is not the way to change their mind. In fact, you can't really change people's minds at all. I don't think by talking to them, even if it's really nice. I mean, and to the extent that you can, sometimes that doesn't create the sort of system level mass changes in ideology that we need to change politics in this country. You have to pair the convincing with some meaningful material policy changes. You need to see the benefit. Right. Yeah. And people need to be re-embedded in communities, organizations, institutions like unions, which I keep returning to. And there is actually good social scientific research. Being a member of a union makes you less likely to be racist. And before your listeners yell at you, yes, of course, there are many racists who are members of labor unions, but it does make people less racist, which is not shocking, just as the dismantling of unions made people available for right wing ideology in a way that they were less available to when they were union members. Like the corollary of that's true, which is that we have to recreate institutions where people can build power together through concrete struggles over the conditions of their own lives, whether as workers, as tenants, as over police people, whatever. And then that's how people's minds Mm -hmm. change, but not through like just as people's minds don't get changed to the right by encountering scoldy people on the left on Twitter. And it can be scoldy, but mostly that just like kind of makes it suck to be on the left sometimes is how like shitty we are to each other on Twitter. That's like the shitty thing about that. And people should be better comrades. I think that's like the real problem that there's so much sectarianism and meanness within the left. But that's not turning people in some structural big way into right wingers. Yeah, it does, it's, uh, it's a bizarre. I, I mean, people are just too online as well. And so they they are political analysis and they don't read their, you know, people like Brett Stevens probably don't read that many books. I mean, the flight to Greenland's pretty long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but their analysis is based on whatever annoys them on Twitter. Well, right. I mean, 
So much of this, I think, speaks to, I'm going to talk about Adam as if he's not here right now, to a piece that Adam wrote (laughs) in FAIR way back in uh, 2016, this idea that the reactionary ideological switcheroo effectively blames the victims of the far right for the power of the far right, right? Like, it's not a call in from a concerned ally. It's rather painting anyone with any social justice grievance as fundamentally anti-white, right? Like an anti-white radical that's out to get you, get your family, get your job, whatever, right? Can we talk about this idea that the white male voter is again centered in this entire frame of argument or political understanding as like a Hulk-like, you know, creature, and that the point of moderate, sensible, again, kind of civil politics is to avoid at all costs awakening the beast of their inner reactionary. Yeah. I mean, first, like I said before, it's a weird, obsessive focus on a certain portion of the electorate. But that said, that portion does matter, as do other portions in terms of winning, which is a big part of what I think we're all thinking about when we choose to think about electoral politics. And beyond electoral politics, people's ideologies matter for a lot of other reasons that are of interest to us on the left beyond presidential, congressional, gubernatorial, whatever elections. So it assumes uh, it's like bizarrely infantilizing as though white working class people like operate, their brains operate in like a distinctly different way than others that I think is probably generated mostly amongst white professionals who only have a sort of like distant national geographic light national geographic like relationship to white working class people it doesn't at all explain how different forms of identity can become more or less salient for a person is their identity as part of a working class that might be multiracial more salient or is their identity as white people more salient or as americans or as white americans there are all kinds of identities that people inhabit often simultaneously. And that history that we were talking about earlier, that history particularly of since the neoliberal turn, disembedding people from organizations that created a grounded material basis for more progressive ideologies, that vacuum is then filled by other identities like whiteness and just presuming that there's some like timeless immemorial, I don't know, like Scotch-Irish sensibility or something that makes all white working class people tick. And if you use a pronoun in front of them, they're going to go fascist. It doesn't allow us to understand how white working class people have behaved in very different ways politically, in very different moments, in very different contexts throughout American history. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. They're all just like subjects from like Walker Evans photographs. Because the other side of the coin, I think, has the similar, suffers from similar fallacies, which is that there's this kind of fixed, inextricably racist white working class voter who there's like, you should make zero effort to try to win over in any way, which is its own form of anti-politics, right? Because in my mind, thinking, well, what the fuck are we doing then? Yes. The point of politics is an evangelical enterprise. And I don't know of any evangelical enterprise, whether it's, you know, baptism or Methodism or... (laughs) Islam or communism, where you write off whole populations, you know, one third of the country is white men, right? And then I guess suddenly, again, this meaningful percentage who voted for Obama, but then voted for Trump, that they got more racist, I guess, 
Like, I don't know how that works exactly, or they were not racist, but anyway, it's confusing to me. And this serves a similar function that these are kind of non-dynamic, you know, the kind of the, the extreme centrist says we have to pander to their racism and not spook them with Black Lives Matter or George Floyd. But then the corporate liberal mercenary says, oh, well, they're all, fuck them anyway, let's just ignore them. Because the real reason, of course, they do that is because they don't want to address economic populism as one way of rearranging those identities, right? That it is a sort of fixed moral failing on the part of people and that it's a useless waste of time to try to win them over. And it's like, yeah, I mean, again, politics are about coalitions and those things get really messy. And if you just had coalitions with people who had the most perfect ideological proclivities, then you really would never build coalitions. But that's different than like, are they, you know, but at the same time, obviously, you're not going to build a political coalition with with Richard Spencer because he also supports Medicare for all, right? I mean, there are limits to that, obviously. But you can't be that precious about these things. And it strikes me as the both of those dynamics serve a similar function, which is to say, yeah, there's nothing we can do. So let's all just forget any kind of rearranging of, of economic left-wing politics. And let's just sort of assume that everything's fixed and hand millions of dollars over to consultants. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back to the distinction that you were drawing earlier about the difference of how to think about relating to right-wing leaders and ordinary people with right-wing ideas. And I'm doing a bunch of tenant organizing right now in Rhode Island, and a couple of our tenant leaders are without a doubt Trump supporters. But in terms of the campaign, they are behaving like communists. Right. <laughs> I hope they're not listening to this. <laughs> um, this will um, not and, be shared with them. <laughs> and that is, is that like a complex and contradictory and sometimes uncomfortable process? Definitely. Is it the only way I believe that we can build working class and left wing power in this country? Also, yes. But yeah, I mean, I think that's right that there is a corollary on the left and particularly maybe amongst like liberal elites to this argument that like, you know, don't bang on the white working class guy's cage or he'll flip out, which is, as you say, this argument that any kind of push forward for racial justice or justice for any sort of oppressed people will inevitably face white racist reaction because white people are just fundamentally, like almost biologically racist. And there's some truth to the fact that any push forward for justice for oppressed groups will elicit a reaction, given that the history of this country is so thoroughly racist, something we don't need to get into the details of for citations needed. Listeners, it is true that, you know, for example, any attempt to include excluded people into the mid-20th century social and economic New Deal compact would have generated some white racist reaction. I mean, Adam, you're you're in Chicago where black people, when they tried to move into white neighborhoods, got their houses firebombed. And that was the kind of violence that black people faced in their struggle to, in a sense, universalize the New Deal promise from which they'd been excluded mm -hmm. in the 1960s and 70s. Thankfully, I'm in New York where there's never been racism. Where everything's been totally chill as Spike Lee has demonstrated in his uh, past films. And as current education and housing policy continues to affirm. Yes, everything's like very chill, lots of uh, multiracial bonhomie, uh, definitely no problems to look at, especially in what are those schools called, those admit-only schools. <laughs> but Adam, like you said, like the analysis has to be more dynamic in that. So looking back to that history, which I think is really key, in the 60s and 70s, this push to universalize the promises of economic security of the New Deal from which black people had been excluded, it took place at the very moment when that system, in part because of those exclusions, was going into severe crisis. 
There was a crisis because of stagflation, the oil shock, intensifying global competition. And capitalists, so capitalists were tearing up the New Deal settlement and going on the offensive against labor and against the welfare state at the very moment that women, black people, queer people, et cetera, were fighting to get a piece of something. And it was getting torn apart at that very moment. So that means that in that moment, white people are reacting to this in a context of newly intensified scarcity. If that context had been one of plenty, instead one of a deepening welfare state rather than one that was getting eviscerated, I think that would have mitigated, though certainly not eliminated, the white reaction. Like, things are dynamic. Yeah, abundance will create different outcomes than austerity, right? I mean, like, fundamentally. And so feeling like things are being taken away is going to then produce a kind of backlash, as you've been saying. Without getting too deep into Bernie-related things, I am really curious, though, about your take on how campaigns like Bernie Sanders were such a threat to this idea of, oh, well, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that you just have to write off. And then with the whole kind of Bernie to Trump voter seem to then double back on itself and reaffirm these ideas that have been so long entrenched in, you know, whether it's elite politics or kind of mainline media. Talk about that, like the threat and then the affirmation there in terms of how solidarity worked and then was broken. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty twisted that the very fact that Bernie could appeal to voters who might also find Trump appealing was then used in like either, you know, great ignorance or incredibly bad faith, one of the two, to attempt to portray Bernie and his kind of class struggle social democratic campaign for the presidency as racist in some way, especially to emphasize this again, coming from the sort of Clintonite political world, the people who brought us mass incarceration, the war on immigrants. I mean, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama and Joe Biden all voted and it was either 2006 or 2007 for the Secure Fence Act, which signed by into law by George W. Bush, which built like 600, 700 something miles of fencing that looks very much like Trump's wall across the border. It's fencing, not a wall, buddy. Big difference <laughs> between the two political parties. Yeah, it's just a fence. This is like the uh, cages versus fence discussion around how, <laughs> how we housed immigrants. And when, when you're when you're getting to that degree of semantics, it's not a good sign. Well, I, I mean, do you remember uh, it was sometime during the Trump administration that John Favreau, he posted something on Twitter, a photo of two young girls sleeping on the floor of a cage and was like, look at how monstrous this is. And it was monstrous, but it turned out the photo was from under the Obama administration when John was working for him. I mean, yeah. anyhow, that's why none of us will ever stop being triggered by the 2016 primary um, until the days that we die. Mm-hmm. I think fundamentally there is like class-based universal projects that are also fundamentally anti-racist that Bernie was not always perfectly, but I think very powerfully putting forward. And the real historical predecessor, that is Jesse Jackson's Social Democratic Rainbow Coalition project of the 1980s, which was precisely trying to not like today's liberal elite identity politics, not just diversifying the upper ranks of this immiserating system that's grinding people into the dust, which is an alienating form of identity politics. It's not the primary thing driving people to the right, but that is alienating, that combination of being like, look how diverse Wall Street is, et cetera. Like that does alienate people. But it's a sort of politics that precisely, that version of identity politics was precisely to emerge, precisely to kind of like 
brutally replace that rainbow coalition identity politics of the 1980s, which was about stitching all of these particularities into a majority with a universalistic bent. Yeah, I think about for the episode we did on unions and, and film, I watched the film Pride. Basically, it's about the solidarity between in 1984. The coal miners and... Yeah, and the radical gay and lesbian radical groups. Um, they completely erase the fact that the guy who did it's a communist because the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, oh, this guy's totally got to be in the communist party. <laughs> and then I look it up on Wikipedia and it's like, oh yeah, yes. he's totally in the communist party. But they, they have like one offhanded <laughs> reference and there's like a hammer and sickle in the very far back. He starts doing fundraising as a gay and lesbian group for the miners strike to provide labor support fund. And of course, they have the obligatory scene where he goes into this small town in Wales and faces a lot of bigotry. But then he keeps, he sort of keeps kind of at it, right? He sort of faces the bigotry. Now, look, as someone who has ever faced those kinds of vectors of oppression, it's obviously much more easier said than done. And I don't want to be too romantic about it. And obviously, it's a fictionalization, although much of the basic outline is true. Where he, he said, okay, we have a mutual, and they keep repeating this in the movie. It's actually the best part of the movie, I think, is that like, where they say, like, who are the minor strikes enemies? It's Margaret Thatcher, cops, and the tabloid papers. And who is the gay and lesbian community's enemies? Margaret Thatcher, the cops, and the tabloids, right? <laughs> um, and so they have a shared mutual enemy. And he's like, that's good enough reason to go do fundraising for them because we hate the same people. And then he goes to Wales, faces all this kind of discrimination. But of course, they, again, it gets a little squishy and liberal where they kind of overcome the differences and so forth. And and I was watching this and I was thinking like, okay, so this is actually fundamentally a movie about convincing people right? It is a movie about evangelizing, not rather than sort of saying, we're going to write off this whole town. And again, much of the outline is true, right? The, the, the fact is that the miners did strike in the gay and lesbian pride parade in 1985. That is, all that's true. All that's factually accurate. Again, not perfect. Still lots of homophobes. Obviously, the strike itself is largely seen as a failure. But there is some possible, again, if you don't believe in the fundamental premise that we can use working class solidarity to better our lot, and overcome prejudices to do so, then I don't know what the fuck you believe in. <laughs> then we are fucked. <laughs> and there's, then, yeah, then we may as well just all go eat a gun. I mean, I'm yeah. being serious here. Like, I don't... Fully agree. Th- without being too <laughs> Pollyannish or romantic, one of the things that annoys me about this idea is that, like, again, that there's this fixed Hulk-like white working class, and our job is to either write them off or tiptoe around them and not ever confront their prejudices. And that I got got to think there's a third way here. <laughs> yeah. And that third way, there's an amazing article by this young political scientist named not like super young. I mean, young in terms of like just finished grad school and is like just got a job young. Um, Jared Clemens called. I just pulled it up from Freedom Now to Black Lives Matter, retrieving King and Randolph to theorize contemporary white anti-racism. I did an interview with him on it, I think, a couple months back. And basically what he does is goes to Martin Luther King and A. Philip Randolph, the early and mid 20th century black labor and civil rights leader, and looks at their writing and speeches and excavates a just brutal critique of liberal identity politics. Basically, King and Randolph are like elite white allies, you know, garbage, ephemeral, useless. What we need is materially grounded solidarity with white workers, regardless of what ideas, good or bad, those white workers have in their head, because that is the only way we are going to build enough power to win freedom. I think that all of these different ways of kind of conceiving of the don't wake the beast, <laughs> tiptoeing around nature of this, you know, who is who is centered in this story, in this framework, who are its victims, who is to blame, yeah, is kind of 
everything here, right? Because it, it tells a story of kind of what we're supposed to believe, which then opens up <laughs> possibilities, but also forecloses a lot of things. And so uh, I think that's a great place to leave it. We, of course, have been speaking with Daniel Denver, host of The Dig podcast on Jackman Radio and author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which was published in 2020 by Verso Books. Dan, thank you so much for joining us again on Citations Needed. Thank you. It's really fun to be the guest on a podcast. That was me appearing on Citations Needed. Please subscribe to Citations Needed to listen to the full episode and to check out all their great work. Also, please support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this pod up and running strong. A contribution of any amount at all gets you our weekly email newsletter. A contribution of $10 a month or more gets you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. But the real reason you should support The Dig is because that's what allows us to make this podcast and to make every episode freely available to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay with no paywalls. Thank you. Thank you.